Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out of pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello and welcome to the History of England, episode 48, Richard and the Third Crusade. So, we'd arrived at Acre, and before Philip of France arrived at Acre, the phrase Christian besieging force was a bit of a joke, in fact. The besieging force was, in fact, more besieged against than besieging. Things had got so bad that by March 1191, if you were a Christian stuck in your camp outside Acre and had a silver penny, you could buy a mere 13 beans. A sack of corn was going to put you back 100 gold pieces. Truth to say, though, things weren't a lot better within Acre itself. The Italian maritime trading cities play an increasingly important part in the life of Outremer. The Pisans had provided the Crusaders with a fleet, on which the Christians absolutely relied to maintain the siege. Guy and Conrad had managed to keep the pressure up for a long 16 months of the siege so far and the Pisans had managed to prevent Saladin's navy from getting out of Acre, or more supplies being brought in. Philip arrived on the 20th of April, 1191. The arrival was something of a double-edged sword. Yes, on the one hand, it brought heart to the Christians that help had arrived, and Philip immediately set to work to build more siege engines to batter the walls. But on the other hand, the most puissant king of France came in epoxy two-bit no-good cotton-picking six ships. So Saladin's forces picked up a bit as well. Is this the best they can do, they asked themselves. Bear in mind also that by this stage the threat from the north and from Frederick Barbarossa's crusade had disappeared. The Holy Roman Emperor had fallen from his horse and drowned in a river and almost all of his army had gone home. Interestingly enough, Barbarossa himself did continue the journey. They popped his body into a barrel of vinegar, as you do. 
Then, once they arrived in Antioch, someone had the nice job of boiling the body until the flesh fell off, like a good mutton stew. Oh, I should have mentioned that before the boiling started, his heart and inner organs were removed. Nice work, if you can get it. The idea was that part of his body at least would end up in Jerusalem. As we know, this wasn't going to happen. But Barbarossa's flesh ended up in Antioch, his bones in Tyre, and his heart and other bits in Tarsus. On the army side, only Frederick of Swabia, Barbarossa's second son, arrived in Acre with a force of 5,000 men, which was soon to be reduced by disease. Nonetheless, the besiegers pressed their newfound advantage. And by the beginning of June, Saladin moved his army closer, worried that Acre was in trouble. On the 5th of June, Richard's army set sail from Cyprus. On the way, they met and sunk an enormous Egyptian supply ship, which was effectively the last attempt to resupply Acre by Saladin. His arrival on the 8th of June at Acre with his 25 ships, with the rest of the fleet destined to follow later, was unequivocally a kick in the guts for Saladin and the inhabitants of Acre. Over the next month, as Richard's engineers started to mine the walls and his engines joined the others in battering the walls, the pressure mounted. But the problem was that when a breach was made every day and the Christians would prepare for a big attack, then Saladin would attack from his camp outside and draw the Christians off and by the time they were free again, the walls had been repaired and so the whole thing would have to start again. But hate it or loathe it, the pressure was beginning to tell. And on the 5th of July, Richard fired his mines and brought more wall down. On the 7th of July, the defenders told Saladin that they would fight to the death. But on the 11th, Richard and the Pisans attacked and came so close to breaking through that the defenders decided that the idea of fighting to the death might actually become a reality if they weren't careful. Because the rules were basically the same as they were in the West. If the garrison surrendered, they were usually able to walk away unharmed. If they held out, the place would be sacked. And so on the 12th, they agreed terms. The deal was that Saladin would pay 200,000 dinars for the 2,700 prisoners that would come from Acre. He'd release 1,500 Christian prisoners he held, and he'd return the True Cross. One of the defenders swam out from Acre to confirm the deal with Saladin. By the way, I saw some figures that would suggest that 200,000 dinars would come to something like 25 million in today's weight in gold. Clearly, this is to be taken with a massive dose of salt, but this works out, if true, at about £10,000 per person. Now we all know that life is priceless, but as far as Saladin was concerned, not that priceless. So as far as he was concerned, the whole deal was rotten to the core, and he sat down to write a note to tell Richard where he could put his surrender terms. And then he saw the balance go down on the walls, and much to his horror, he realised that his officers had accepted the deal on his behalf. So by the 15th, after some tidying up, Richard, Berengaria and his sister Joan were all set up in the palace in Acre. If Saladin had been watching Acre closely, he'd have seen three flags appear on the walls. There was the French flag of Philip, the flag of Richard of England and that of Duke Leopold of Austria. Now I confess, I have no idea what the flags looked like at this point. I can tell you that from 1198... Richard made England's royal banner, Ghouls, three-lioned, passant, gardened, in pale ore, armed and longed azure. Got that? In English, this means three identical gold lions with blue tongues and claws, walking and facing the observer, arranged in a column on a red background. There's an image on the website. At this point, 
It might have been a single line rampant, but, as they say, whatever. Then, as Saladin sat outside his tent under his awning, sipped his sherbet and contemplated what a rat's bottom of an agreement his lieutenants had signed him up to, he might have seen one of the banners wobble and fall down. That would be Duke Leopold's, torn down by Richard. So what on earth was going on with the banner thing, and who is this Leopold character? Well, Frederick Swabia had died of disease soon afterwards, leaving Leopold as the leader of the German contingent. Putting his banner up there alongside Philip and Richard was completely unrealistic. He had nothing of their status, nor the size of army he needed. Okay, but why not let him have his place in the sun? What harm could it do? Well, it would suggest a share in the plunder. It would suggest a formal place at the leadership table for Leopold. And Leopold was also aligning himself with the mass of lesser lords and countries like Prince Giza of Hungary, for example, who felt excluded by Philip and Richard. Leopold knew exactly what he was doing, in fact, and Richard was having none of it. Richard's way of dealing with Leopold's power grab is typical. Decisive and straightforward, yes. High-handed and arrogant, also yes. I doubt Richard gave it a moment's thought, but he'd humiliated Leopold and he'd made himself an enemy. Meanwhile, Philip of France popped off back home. One of the things that made me a bit grumpy about Stephen Runciman's, in most ways, excellent history of the Crusades was his cheerful condemnation of the length of time Richard took to get to the Holy Land with his cheerful acceptance of why it was perfectly reasonable for Philip to leave so early. I had to say that Richard hardly put the afterburners on to get there, I agree, but as for Philip leaving after three months, and that being absolutely fine and dandy, well, that's not the way the contemporaries saw it. The English chroniclers saw it as a cowardly, self-interested desertion, and you can see the sweat on the brows of the French chroniclers as they tried to come up with reasonable excuses. Interestingly, Philip's leading knights voted with their feet, staying in Outremer with Richard. But Philip just couldn't live with the situation. It was humiliating. He'd suffered the repudiation of his sister. He'd had to cope with the big bearded Angevin with his big army and warlike reputation. And Capitol, his own men, preferred to stay. Philip swore to do no harm to Richard while he was away, a promise he wasn't to keep. Now, you may remember that Philip of France had decided to support Conrad of Montferrat's claim to the throne of Jerusalem against that of Guy of Lusignan, who was Richard's favoured candidate. Well, Philip's departure left Conrad somewhat in the lurch. His big supporter as contender was off, leaving him to cope with Guy and Richard. So he did what any brave, noble and proud warrior would do, and he bravely threw himself at Richard's feet and begged for pardon. The next day, Both claimants put their case to Richard, who came out with a cunning plan. Guy would remain king for his lifetime, but Conrad and his descendants would be Guy's heirs. One of the features of Richard's stay in Outremer was his willingness to engage in diplomacy with his enemy. As we've discussed, for the old hands, those born and bred in Outremer, this is second nature anyway. But for a newcomer, it's pretty exceptional. He started almost as soon as he arrived, sending an envoy to Saladin on the 18th of June, suggesting that they should meet. In fact, Saladin and Richard never did meet, which is a crying shame. But Richard has regular contact with Saladin's brother, al Adl. This is part of the great story that has grown up about Richard and Saladin, the elaborate courtesies that were carried out, 
in the midst of a desperate struggle for survival and a religious war. And it's all true. The stories of Saladin sending Richard snow and fresh fruit when he's ill, that sort of thing. But the real point about all this contact is actually that the image of Richard as a kind of sledgehammer of a bloke, all violence and no subtlety, is very far from the truth. Right from the beginning of the crusade, Richard was trying to achieve his ends through diplomacy. But in point of fact, it was the failure of diplomacy that was to lead to probably the biggest blot on Richard's record. After the 12th of July, Saladin and Richard clarified the terms of the treaty. And after a lot of toing and froing, by the 2nd of August, they'd agreed to Saladin's terms that the Christians would have to be happy with a first instalment by the 11th of August, that is, all the prisoners, the True Cross, and half the money. But on the 11th, Saladin put new conditions on the deal, essentially because he didn't trust the Christians, who had, it must be admitted, some form in the cheating department. Negotiations dragged on until the 20th. Saladin was basically playing for time. Richard was vulnerable to this. There was a limit to how long he could stay in Outremer, and the clock was ticking. And on the 20th of August, Saladin's camp saw the Christian army move forward to the plain outside Acre, bringing with them the 2,700 prisoners. In the words of the chronicler Baha al-Din, he now broke the solemn promise he had made. They fell upon them as one man and slaughtered them in cold blood with sword and lance. In history, as we said, context is everything. Richard would quite rightly point to the fact that Saladin had broken his side of the agreement and more than once, that these prisoners had become a way of tying him down to Acre rather than getting on with the military necessities. But while I think it's unlikely that Richard did this, as has been suggested in a fit of uncontrolled rage, and while there's no doubt that other Christian leaders would have been consulted and agreed to of what had happened, Richard's decision to kill 2,700 defenceless people in cold blood does surely tell us something about the man. The Muslim chroniclers were, of course, livid, and the slaughter would be remembered 100 years later when Acre was retaken by them. There was some reprisal. Any Christian prisoners taken between the 28th of August and the 10th of September were executed and mutilated. But there's no mention of a mass slaughter of Christians in response. And while, as my mother always told me, slightly irritatingly, that two wrongs don't make a right, you have to admit that the Muslim response was reasonably measured. Richard's plan was in all likelihood to establish a firm basis for Outremer by recapturing the cities and fortresses along the coast before striking inland to capture the objective of the whole thing, i.e. Jerusalem. So Richard's next aim was to capture the port of Jaffa, which was closest to Jerusalem, and Ascalon as the key point of defence against attack from Egypt. With these ports in his hands, Richard hoped that he could solve the logistical problems he'd face capturing Jerusalem in the face of the enemy and of the climate. The march to Jaffa and the Battle of Arsuf is one of the main bases for Richard's military reputation. The march to Jaffa was about 70 miles along the coast, which gave Richard the chance to be resupplied by sea, and meant he only had to defend one flank as he marched. But the situation also helped the Saracen army. The enemy was out in the open. All through the long march from the 25th of August, the highly mobile Turkish mounted archers were able to stay at a distance, pouring arrows into Richard's army. Richard's cavalry would give them a kicking in a hand-to-hand fight, but they were much slower and they'd have to catch them first. This was Saladin's tactic. 
goad the slow and heavily armoured knights to charge at the wrong time, skip away, surround and cut them off from the main body of the army, and then slaughter them. So the key to this march was not gallantry or glory, it was organisation and self-discipline. As it happens, it was the lightly armoured crusader horses that were the most susceptible to the Saracen arrows. The light horse archers' bows didn't have the power at range to pierce the footman's coat of mail or even their leather jerkin, although they could stick into it. So the footmen marched on the left-hand side of the line of march, forming a defensive screen, keeping the Saracen skirmishers at a distance. Bahar al-Din commented, I saw some of the Frankish foot soldiers with from one to ten arrows sticking in them, and still advancing at their usual pace. The horsemen were then protected, and could be launched if an opportunity presented itself. As they marched, footmen would be circulated to march on the right-hand flank by the sea for a while to recover from the constant harassment. But the key was discipline. No one was to attack without orders, something which ran counter to the crusaders' wild reputation and instincts, but the very first day of the march demonstrated the dangers. The line became extended and the rearguard under the Duke of Burgundy lagged behind. The Turkish horsemen swooped in, cutting the line. The situation was retrieved with Richard's personal intervention, but the lesson was learnt. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Day after day, the army marched on in the boiling heat. Saladin's army was constantly moving ahead, destroying any fortresses or crops that would be useful to them. And eventually Saladin began to realise that the Christian discipline for once was going to hold, and that they weren't going to crack, and that he had to do something different. On the 5th of September, Richard's army entered into the forest of Arsuf, and when they came out on the 6th, they saw all of Saladin's army ahead of them. Saladin had chosen a flat plain where his archers could manoeuvre, but where his flanks were protected by a forest and by Jaffa on the other side. By the 7th, Richard knew that battle would be joined. In the face of the whole of Saladin's army, the Christian line of march would nonetheless continue. Templars were to form the vanguard, along with the Bretons and Angevins. The next segment was Guy of Lusignan and the Poitivians. Then the English and Normans then the remaining French contingents, and at the rear, the Hospitallers. The two armies were of roughly similar sizes, somewhere between 20 and 30,000 men. Richard's army would have been infantry heavy, with maybe around 14,000 of infantry, and then a mix of Turkopoles and knights. Saladin's army would have had more horse than foot. Saladin's tactics remained essentially the same, to hit the line with skirmishers, and get the knights to charge at the wrong time, then to scatter, cutting up the Christian army piecemeal, before committing the main body of his army, including the heavier Mamluk cavalry, to destroy the remaining Christian infantry. All day Saladin's men charged the Christian line, with a clash of cymbals and the sound of trumpets, releasing hail after hail of arrows. Nubian and Bedouin auxiliaries joined in, throwing javelins into the tightly packed line. Richard and the Duke of Burgundy rode up and down the line, making sure that the Christian formation held. The attack began to focus on the Hospitallers. The Christian crossbowmen responded as they could, but despite the defensive screen, 
the Hospitaller's horses were taking a beating, and they feared there would not be enough horses left to mount any kind of charge at all. Again and again, the Hospitallers begged to be able to charge. A time and time again, Richard refused. The crisis came mid-afternoon, as the rearguard tired in the heat and the dust, and the Turkish cavalry saw a gap open up and charged into it. Again, the Hospitallers asked for permission to charge. Again, they were refused. But this time, the master of the hospital had come to the end of his tether, and he charged with a cry of St George. Richard knew that if they were cut off, they would be surrounded and cut down. So he ordered a general charge. Baha'uldin describes what happened. They put their lances in their rests and uttered a mighty war cry, and the ranks of infantry parted to allow them to pass. Then they swept out and charged, one division against our right wing, another against our left, and a third against our centre, throwing our whole force into confusion. I was in the centre, and when that body fled in the wildest disorder, I tried to take refuge with the left wing which was nearer, but found that too was struck with panic. Now that he was committed, in typical fashion, Richard was in the thick of it. King Richard pursued the Turks with singular ferocity, fell upon them and scattered them across the ground. No one escaped when his sword made contact with them, Wherever he went, his brandished sword cleared a wide path on all sides. Continuing his advance with untiring sword strokes, he cut down that unspeakable race as if he were reaping the harvest with a sickle, so that the corpses of Turks he had killed covered the ground everywhere for the space of half a mile. Having waited all day for just this to happen, Saladin was taken off guard, and the Franks had done more damage than he'd hoped, but the whole affair wasn't finished. Saladin managed to rally at least some of his men, and his nephew, Tariq al-Din, led a countercharge with 700 elite bodyguard against the scattered Frankish forces, which is, after all, what the whole plan was all about. But Richard was live to this danger, and he'd held back the Norman and English contingent in reserve. Richard and William de Bar countercharged, and the day was won. Saladin's army broke, pursued and slaughtered by the Frankish knights. Saladin's camp itself was sacked, and his army reformed at Ramleh, 25 kilometres away. Saladin himself appeared overwhelmed, and only reluctantly took a little food. We were all wounded, wrote Baha al-Din, either in our bodies or in our hearts. Richard was well chuffed. Asuf was an important victory. Saladin's reputation was severely dented, what with Acre and now Asuf. His army was badly mauled, losing up to 7,000 men to Richard's 700. Saladin would never again commit a full attack against Richard. The victory of Arsuf gave the Crusader states another 100 years of existence when it had simply seemed impossible. And if Richard had lost Arsuf, the fat lady would have been singing her heart out for Utremer. But hate it or loathe it, Arsuf was no Hattin. Saladin's army was quickly back in the field. He was well able to defend Jerusalem. But if there are still any of you out there who think Richard was a wild, uncontrolled maniac, this is surely all the evidence you need. Arsuf was a triumph of logistics, planning, control and discipline, as well as of aggression. However, Richard was able to march into Jaffa, where Saladin had already destroyed the castle. And meanwhile, Saladin had seriously had the wind put up him, and decided that Ascalon was also indefensible. He was then in the process of destroying the castle there, and Richard wanted to march on to Ascalon before it was destroyed, but everyone else was knackered, 
so they stayed on to re-fortify Jaffa. Richard was already thinking ahead and replanning, and incidentally already worrying that he didn't have the men and resources he needed to capture Jerusalem. He wrote to the abbot of Clairvaux, asking him to organise preaching to persuade more people to take the cross and come across to the Holy Land. He opened discussions with the Genoese and the Pisans to support an attack on Egypt. He countered a treacherous plan from Conrad of Montferrat to desert him, allying himself with Saladin in return for Sidon and Beirut. And he kept discussions open with Saladin, making proposals to win his objective by diplomacy. His pitch was that Saladin should just hand over Jerusalem and the True Cross because they weren't going away, so go on, just hand them over and we can all get on with it. Saladin's response was, uh, let me think about that, no. So Richard made a rather innovative proposal. Here was the plan. Richard's sister Joan would marry Saladin's brother Adel. Then they'd rule jointly, peace would return. Muslim and Christian would live together as brothers. And everyone would live happily ever after, job sorted. Neither Joan nor Adel were impressed with the idea, and it's very likely that the suggestion was never really serious. But the diplomacy that went on was the stuff of legend. Richard personally knighted Adel's son. Balian of Ibeline, the man who'd been forced to surrender Jerusalem, was given a magnificent reception by Saladin. The idea, of course, was to use the exchanges as much to suss out the opposition and to spook the opposition with your self-confidence and power as to arrive at any kind of agreement. The truth on both sides was very different. Richard knew he faced an almost impossible task to take Jerusalem in the face of an organised enemy. On the other hand, Saladin was a worried man. He was worried about Richard's military successes and his ability to take him on, and he was genuinely worried that he would lose Jerusalem. And now to be brutal, the Third Crusade gets a bit dull, a bit of a phony war. Richard marched ten miles inland to Ramley, forcing Saladin to retreat. The weather was lousy, wet, cold, foggy and kind of English. Richard advanced to bite Nuba, just twelve miles from Jerusalem in heavy rain and hailstorms, and Richard's army celebrated that they were finally going to attack and capture the holy city, what they'd come for. And Saladin, meanwhile, retreated before Richard, but he hit him with raids where he knew it would hurt and worry him most, his supply lines on the road to Jaffa. So Richard took advice, considered the ground around Jerusalem, crucially thought about how Jerusalem would be defended if he did win it, and in January 1192 ordered a retreat to Ramley. There has been much debate about whether or not Richard was right, but his view was that it was impossible to take and hold while Saladin was active, and that too many Westerners would go home once they'd seen the holy places. But sensible or not, the decision called time on the crusade for many of Richard's army, and many went home, particularly the French contingent. So from this point forward, the army was considerably smaller than it had been. For the next four months, Richard concentrated on rebuilding Ascalon, trying to find a negotiated settlement with Saladin, and dealing with all the internal politics. Now, chief amongst the latter was the situation between Guy and Conrad. Essentially, Richard was beginning to realise that there was a reason why Outremer had suffered the defeat at Hattin, and Guy's weakness and his inability to control his barons was a major factor. Guy and Conrad were not cooperating and they weren't playing nice, and this would have dire consequences for Outremer once Richard had gone. So Richard called another council, 
He discussed it with the leading barons and this time opted for Conrad. Guy was to have Cyprus as compensation, which the Templars were happy to transfer for the appropriate 100,000 peasant fee, and the Lusignan, in fact, were to reign in Cyprus for the next 300 years. In Tyre, Conrad apparently fell on his knees and gave thanks to God when he heard. But a few days later, on the 28th of April, 1192, Conrad was murdered. But at least he died thinking he was going to be king of Jerusalem. Now, unknown to you, this gives me another excellent opportunity for a digression. The guys who killed Conrad confessed before they died that they were assassins with a capital A, i.e. they were followers of Rashid al-Din Sinan, known in the West as the Old Man of the Mountain. Between 1169 and 1193, Sinan was the head of the Syrian wing of a religious sect called the Hashishin. The name comes from Hashish, because the followers of the sect were accused of taking hash. And our word assassin comes in turn from Hashishin. The heretical sect had been founded in the 11th century and Orthodox Muslims had tried hard to suppress it. But the Hashishin had fought back, using assassination of their enemies' leaders by stealth as their main weapon. They controlled castles high in the hills outside the county of Tripoli and worked with both Muslim and Christian leaders to assassinate leaders where it met their ends for either political or financial advantage. Saladin himself had tried hard to destroy them and had twice narrowly escaped his own assassination. On the third occasion, Saladin woke in his tent to find a threatening note with a poison dagger thrust through it. All of this convinced Saladin to lead the sect well alone. What's not clear is why they decided to assassinate Conrad. It's clear that Saladin recognised Conrad as an effective adversary, so it could have been him, though it doesn't sound like his way of doing business. It could have been Rashid himself for some reason, but the finger most widely agreed at the time was Richard. People knew about the tension between Guy and Conrad. They suspected that Richard's late conversion to Conrad's cause was just a blind, and it gave the supporters of Philip a great chance for propaganda against their hero's enemy. In point of fact, it seems highly unlikely that it was Richard. He'd just declared for Conrad. He was now trying to extricate himself from the Holy Land, and he needed to leave a strong state behind him. And in the end, he supported a man called Henry of Champagne to become king of Jerusalem, and didn't impose Guy back on Outremer. Richard was trying to extricate himself, because news had reached him from England about the intrigues of John and Philip, But meanwhile, the barons in the Crusader army decided that whatever Richard did, they should all attack Jerusalem. So, after capturing the town of Darum further down the coast, in June, Richard moved the army back towards Jerusalem and camped at Beit Nuba again. The story goes that Richard rode to a nearby hill, Montjoie, from where he could see the holy city. But that he flung up his shield and begged God not to make him look on the city that he was unable to deliver to him because the conclusion was the same as it had been previously. Despite the contempt of the French, who were eager to press ahead, Richard knew that he couldn't maintain a siege at the end of a supply chain with Saladin's army in the field, and back to Ascalon the army went. In theory, the army went back to plan an attack on Beirut. But Saladin unexpectedly launched an attack on Jaffa and came buttock-clenchingly close to taking the citadel until Richard arrived and personally led the charge ashore in the face of a far larger Muslim force. This became part of the mythology of Richard. Outside the walls of Jaffa, Saladin launched a surprise attack on the camp that Richard had established, with 3,000 of his soldiers. 
and against them Richard had a mere six knights and 400 footmen, and yet the Muslims wouldn't attack. Bahá al-Din wrote, I have been assured by men who were there that on that day the King of England, lance in hand, rode along the entire length of our army from right to left, and not one of our soldiers left the ranks to attack him. To all intents and purposes, though, this was the end of the Third Crusade. Richard knew Saladin would now always hold the initiative, and he needed to get back to England. Saladin, for his part, had kept his army in the field too long. His emirs were tired of the war, and Saladin himself was exhausted. Nonetheless, Saladin knew he was in a better negotiating position. Time was on his side. The pressure on Richard would have to grow. And it was this that at last forced Richard to give up Ascalon to close the deal. This was particularly painful. After all, he'd taken four months to rebuild the darn thing. But Saladin just wouldn't contemplate leaving this threat to Egypt in Christian hands. And so the deal was struck. A truce for three years and eight months. Access to Jerusalem for the pilgrims, but the destruction of the citadel at Ascalon. Outremer was to hold on to the conquests that Richard had made. And by 1192, the deal was done and Richard had sailed. Within a year, Saladin himself had died. So what's the scores and the dolls then? Was the third success a success or was it a failure? It failed to achieve its objective, the recapture of Jerusalem. But it without doubt made Outremer a viable state again and gave it another century of life. It's got to be seen in context. When Richard arrived, Outremer was a state that was facing almost certain eradication. When he left it, it was viable. Anyway, so that's where we're going to end this week with Richard boarding a boat to get back home. Next week, we'll look at what's been going on back home in Blighty while Richard was away sunning himself and talk about Richard's unexpected travel delays. As ever, thanks very much for listening. Please leave your comments. Good luck and have a great week. <laughs>